we're looking at pictures of salvation. Now we got through election and predestination, and hopefully um, we won't get sucked back into that too much. But we're going to, unfortunately, we're going to hit around the edges of it as we work our way through the doctrine of salvation, but we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. Um, but we've got into the pictures of salvation. And what we're going to do here is look at some Old Testament pictures having to do with salvation. Um, I think there's a couple of handouts left. There's not many, but there's a couple. I got one more handout. Fight over it. You guys are going to have to share. I'm sorry, but that is that all right? You share. Okay. Here's one. She hoards them. That was for Bev. Okay. That was for Bev. Well, okay, she can. Ooh, okay. That's already got it. Okay. I saved one for her. All right. Well, we'll get we'll get a couple more. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, we're looking at pictures of salvation, so let's open in a word of prayer. Father, thanks for a beautiful day out and for bringing us safely to your house. Open our hearts as we study your word that we may understand what it says to us. And we look at these pictures of salvation in the Old Testament um, that you would just... Uh, Help us to appreciate more fully the salvation we have in Christ's name. Amen. Um, undoubtedly, if you've read through the Old Testament, if you look through the Old Testament, you come across what we would call pictures of salvation. And um, when you look at these pictures, they're giving us an idea of what salvation is all about later on in the New Testament. But even though there are pictures, we need to understand what a picture is. It's not the reality. It's just a picture. So a lot of these pictures are not meant to give us deep theology of salvation, but they give us a glimpse of what salvation is all about. You understand what I'm trying to get at there. It's not, you don't develop theology necessarily off of it, but you do get an understanding of what salvation is and what is accomplished in Christ as we see these pictures. And the thing to understand is that salvation was not an afterthought by God when Adam fell. We talked about this already. It's not when Adam and Eve fell, all of a sudden God says, nuts, what do I do now? Um, quick, let's come up with a plan. This was all part of the eternal decree of God. God knew from eternity past what would happen. God knew that Adam and Eve would fall. God knew what he was going to do um, in response to that. It was all planned out. There was nothing that caught God off guard. He knows what's going on. And as it says in Second in Second Peter, Christ was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, in the mind of God, salvation was accomplished before time began. And in Romans um, 8 that we looked at, our glorification was determined before time began. This was all part of God's sovereign plan. But you see pictures of salvation as you work through the Old Testament. What I've done, I've not gotten all of them, but I've got some of them. Um, and we'll look at some of these. We'll look at uh, seven of these um, pictures. Um, you've got Adam and Eve, which is a proper clothing. You've got Cain and Abel, proper offering. The ark, proper protection. Abraham and Isaac, a proper substitute. The bronze serpent, a proper cure. The Passover lamb, a proper sacrifice. And the day of atonement, a proper covering. All of these are grand pictures of salvation that we see in Christ. In fact, the Old Testament is really a picture book pointing us to who? Christ. Christ told uh, people, you search the scriptures and in them you think you have eternal life and they are they which testify of me. Everything was pointing to Christ. All the pictures, all the imagery, um, all the sacrificial system. If you do an exegetical study of the book of Leviticus someday, what you're going to find is all those sacrifices pointed to who? Christ. Everything pointed to Christ. All it was is a big picture. And the Old Testament sacrificial system was never designed to save anybody. That's one of the things that the Jews had missed totally. Their idea was, well, we do the sacrifices and thereby we're acceptable to God. If we do these things, if we go through these rituals, if we're circumcised, if we're an Abrahamic descendant, we're in. And Paul says in Romans 2, look, just because you're a child of Abraham doesn't mean anything. And just because you got circumcised, that doesn't mean anything. And just because you have the law, that doesn't mean anything either. In fact, if anything, you're triply condemned because you know what God wants and you don't do it. They had reduced salvation to rituals and rites. And you see this constantly in 
Christ's interaction with the Pharisees in the Gospels, where they had reduced everything to what you did. Not it, your heart was irrelevant. What you, what your motivation was, was irrelevant as long as you did the external ritual. You're okay. Now we have that today, don't we? How many people do you personally know that are banking their eternal destiny on what they do? Not on what they know. On who they know. But on what they do. And um, the Jews had missed this. The Jews had missed the whole point of the Old Testament. It was a picture book. It wasn't the reality. I've often used the example of, you know, if I go on a business trip, I take a picture of my wife with me. But what is that? Is that the real thing? It's a picture. Now, you'd think I was whacked if I came home and I was more in love with the picture than I was with the reality standing next to me, right? You'd be whacked because I got the reality. The Old Testament is a picture. It's a photograph. It's a, it points to Christ. It's not the real deal, but it points to him. And then when the reality came, what happened to the Pharisees and the religious leaders? Missed it. They missed the reality. Or they would rather go back and deal with the picture book than the reality that they had. These are pictures. That's all they are. They give us an insight to some aspect of salvation. Um, they give us a rich insight in many cases, but it's just, again, a picture. That's all it is. Let's look at Adam and Eve. What happened when Adam and Eve fell? They sinned, of course. We, we've talked about that in the class. They ate the forbidden fruit, whatever that was. I still think it's a plum because I hate them. But they, um, they ate some forbidden fruit that God told them not to. And they went and made themselves what? Out of what? Leaves. All right? I mean, that's the only thing they had, right? All they had was leaves. They didn't have clothing like we know. They didn't have fabrics like we know. They didn't have all of that stuff. All they had was what was in the garden. What was in the garden were big leaves. So they used... Fig leaves, it says. They sewed and wove for themselves clothes made out of fig leaves. Then what happened when God showed up? Well, you have the curse, right? God exposes them for what they are. They tried to hide it. We already talked about it. They tried to pass the blame. Adam says it's Eve's fault. Eve says it's the serpent's fault. The serpent jokingly didn't have a leg to stand on. All right. Um, everybody tries to pass blame down the line. And God curses, of course, the man, the woman, and the serpent. And in Genesis 3.15, let's just look at that. It's not on the slide here, but in Genesis 3.15, we have a very important verse. It's called the Proto-Evangelion. What's Proto mean? Proto, Protos. First, and even Galion would be salvation. So this is the first mention of the gospel, if you will, in the in the Bible. Three fifteen. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the talking about Christ. What is Christ going to do? He's going to crush the head of the serpent, which is Satan. Satan is seen as the serpent. And he took himself on himself, embodied himself in the serpent in the garden. And what God is saying is that there's coming a seed of the woman someday that's going to crush the head of the serpent. That's a mortal blow. And what are you going to do? You're going to bruise his heel. That's a non-moral blow. This is the crushing of the serpent. This is a talking. There's coming a day in which God will bring about the seed of the woman that will crush the head of Satan. Now, who is the seed of the woman? Jesus Christ. Proto-Evangelion, the first mention of the Gospel in the, in the Bible. It's the first mention. Proto-Evangelion. Just how it sounds. Proto-Evangelion. The Greek word for Gospel is Evangelion. Or Evangelion, and Proto is first. So that's what it's talking about. This is the first mention of the gospel. But then what did God do for Adam and Eve? He said the clothes that you made are not good enough, are they? <coughs> now what was wrong with clothes made out of fig leaves? Theoretically. 
No, yeah. Theoretically, they covered them, right? Theoretically, but pictorially, what were they? They were they were man-made. They were their own of their own making. And God is saying, no, that 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 doesn't work. So what did He do? He took two animals and killed them and made skins. Right. Yeah. Now let's let's think about this. You were created. In a perfect environment, right? You have a perfect world. You have a beautiful garden. You have just a, a perfect, harmonious relationship with all that God has created. You sin. God curses you, and then one of the first things that God does is bring one of those cuddly little animals that you see running around the garden and slaughters it in front of you blood all over the place, gore all over the place, takes the skin off the thing and makes you wear that. How would you feel? You're supposed to. How would we feel? Now, we're used to death, right? We're used to seeing things die and we're used to all that stuff. We would feel bad. But here's... Two people that never known death. They never knew what that was. They, they didn't eat meat. They ate the fruit of the garden. They, they didn't eat animals. It would have been a shock to them. It would have shaken them to their core. And what is God trying to get across to them? Sin's really bad. In fact, sin's a lot worse than you think it is. And what you have there is God is making for them a covering out of an animal. And in order to get the covering, what does it have to do to the animal? Kill it. So here you see the first picture of the concept of not only covering, but of substitution. Now, we don't like that. We don't like, there are people today that don't like the slaughterhouse religion, they call it. Get the blood out of the Bible. We don't like this concept of God being this angry tribal deity that demands sacrifice and blood and there's something wrong and, and, they, and modern man and his sensitivities, it gets, you know, it, it bothers him. The point is, it's supposed to bother you. And it's supposed to bother you because it required death. That's what God is trying to get across. Sin requires death. And if you don't die, somebody has to die for you. Now, could those animals remove the sin of Adam and Eve? No, they couldn't. In fact, all of the animals could not remove any sin. And even when you go to the, um, the sacrificial system in Israel and you have those sacrifices, did those animals take away the sin? What did they do? covered it temporarily. And in fact, how temporary was it? Well, every year, what did you have to do as the high priest? Do another one. Then you had to do another one. And then you had to do another one. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying, that year after year after year, the high priest had to go in and offer a sacrifice. But what did Christ do? One offering. He has perfected forever those who are sanctified. One offering. But in the Old Testament, it was a continual reminder every year. And they could never, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away the sin. Now, Israel thought that they did. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying, so now, let's think about this logically. If the blood of a bull and a goat could take away permanently your sin, why do you have to sacrifice another one next year? Implied in that is what? It didn't take away your sin. It covered it. But it didn't take it away. Only Christ's death and sacrifice could take away the sin. But what Adam and Eve are, cover, are faced with here very early on is this concept of death for sin. Covering. They had to be covered by this animal. God said the fig leaves aren't going to cut it. Because that's your own doing. And unfortunately today a lot of people are facing God with clothes made out of fig leaves. They make their own covering. They think, well, this is good enough. And God is saying, no, it's not good enough. 
We don't like the bloody sacrifice. We don't like a, a bloody religion, but Christianity is a bloody religion. Somebody had to take your place in order for you to be forgiven. Uh, Genesis 3, 7 through 21 has the story of it. And um, the last verse there, unto Adam also and his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. God is saying you need to be clothed with a sacrifice. Why is that? Why did God cause? Why did God kill the animal and clothe them? To show them they take blood. To show them they take blood. But on God's side, what was that depicting? Sacrifice, Sacrifice for their sin. Some, so that allowed him to cover their sin temporarily, right? Did permanently take it away, but it covered it. And if you read between the lines of Genesis, what did Adam and Eve know from that point on? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Implied in that is, I mean, what what we're getting here is we're getting a 30,000 foot perspective of this story. Well, to make God part of their daily routine, basically, is what that was all about. I mean, they were excluding Him by their own choices, yeah. like we do. But in order uh, to incorporate God into their lives, they had to make Him a focus of their their duty. And I think at this point, God communicated to them very clearly yes. the need for a sacrifice. So he them into and it was a shocking thing for them. And it was even shocking because the next time they did a sacrifice, who did it? They did. This wasn't the Lord God who did the sacrifice. This was they who did the sacrifice. They had to get their hands bloody. see that in the Passover. You see that in the Passover. That's one of the, one thing that, that's very important. I get really irritated when somebody comes to me and says, you know, I went to church this week and I didn't get anything out of it. I don't care whether you got something out of it, really. Why did you go? Did you go to get something out of it? Did you go to worship God? I mean, the average Israelite, did he come back after sacrificing a goat and say, you know, that was a great service today. I really got a lot out of that. He didn't get anything out of it. He gave, didn't he? He watched the goat, the best, get cut open and killed for his sin and his family's sin. He didn't get anything out of it. We've got to get out of this you know, self-centered, I go to church because I get something out of it. Now, there's a sense in which we do get something out of it. That, but that's not the motivation. That's the point. Not, not, the motivation of going to church is not because you get something out of this, but what can you bring to it? What can you do to worship God? That's what worship is. It's not what you get out of it. It's what you put into it. And the Israelite had that every day when they brought their sacrifice or every time they brought their sacrifice, it cost them something to do that. David, when he brought the ark into in the, in the Jerusalem, he wanted to make a sacrifice. And remember the man gave him said, here, take the oxen. And David said, no, I will not sacrifice anything to the Lord that did not cost me. 
What we want to do is we want to give the Lord stuff, but we don't want it to cost us anything. In the Old Testament, it cost you something to worship God. It was a price. And that was part of it to understand that there's a cost to worshiping God. If you love Him, if you really love someone, cost is not an issue, is it? No. The question is, do you love the Lord? Huh? The David one? Um, in Samuel, I think Second Samuel somewhere. I don't know the scripture off the top of my head. Um, but you have a proper cause. Now, when you look at the New Testament, what do we see in the New Testament? Well, Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. This is a very fascinating little passage here, but you basically got Joshua, the high priest, standing before God, and it said he had manure-covered garments. That's really what the original text said. He had filthy garments. They were covered with grossness. And what was the imagery there? Well, the Lord took the filthy garments from him and gave him what? New garments to wear. What is that a picture of? Well, Joshua here is the high priest of Israel. And unless God forgives, as you stand before God in and of your own self, what are you covered with? Grossness. You're covered with filth. And what does God have to do? God has to take away that filthy clothing of yours and give you something clean to wear, doesn't he? You see this imagery again in Matthew where you have the parable of the wedding feast. Remember the man who comes in and he has his own clothes on and the king comes and says, wait a minute, where, where's your wedding garment? See, in those days, when you went to the feast like that, you were provided a set of clothes to wear. You were provided a tux. And the guy came in in his overalls and dungarees and the, that doesn't work. Throw this guy out of here. He doesn't have the right clothes on. When we stand before God, we stand before God with the pure righteousness of Christ that clothes us. It's seen as a change of clothing. Um, it is. It is. And you know what those are? Filthy rags in the original? Yes. Menstrual cloths. Gross. He that overcomes, the shame shall be clothed in what? White raiment. God gives you a new change of clothing. Revelation 3.18, talking to Laodicea, I counsel you to buy of me gold, try in the fire that may risk, and white raiment that you may be clothed. And then the great one in Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb, let us be glad and rejoice and honor him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready and to her was granted she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. New set of clothes. This is seen throughout the Bible that, that, part of, that one of the pictures of salvation is God takes away our filthy clothes of self-righteousness, our filthy clothes of sin, our filthy clothes of human effort and gives us a new change of clothes that allows us to enter His presence and be there with Him. There has to be an exchange. And you see that from very early on in the garden when God made Adam and Eve the clothes of the animals of skin. No, you've got to be properly clothed to come into my presence. Then very quickly on the heels of that, you have a proper offering, Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel brought their respective offerings. We all know the story of this. Um, notwithstanding, I recently read a book by a well-known Christian up-and-coming leader who said that Cain killed Abel because Cain was a farmer and Abel was a sheep herder and the sheep got into his grain field and was... Stepping on, I'm not making that up. Um, it, it, it irritated me to read that. Um, look, what was the deal? Well, Cain brought God the fruit of the field. And it says there, there was a day. There, there was a day set when they were to do that. So, what does that indicate? Somebody told them that, right? So, so this wasn't... Hey, Cain, let's go down and let's, let's bring God an offering. You know, let's do something today. We're bored. No, there was a set day in which they were to do this, which indicates that they knew what God wanted. It wasn't a guessing game. See, when I was growing up as a little kid, I always thought, you know, poor Cain, he just guessed wrong. 
He happened to be a farmer. Abel was the sheep herder. And it just so happened that, you know, they just brought God what they thought God would want. And God liked Abel's sacrifice and didn't like Cain's. And Cain sort of felt bummed about that because it was unfair that God would do that. And No, that's not what was it at all. Cain and Abel both knew exactly what God wanted, didn't they? You read between the lines, they knew what God wanted. Because God told Cain, if you do the right thing, will you not also be accepted? Which indicates what? He knew what the right thing was. His attitude is, I'll just give God what, what I have. And, and that's the other thing that you see in these pictures. You don't give God what you think God wants. You give God what He tells you He wants. There's a difference there. Today we have people that bring God what they think God will take. Yeah, they'll bring Him the second-hand stuff. They'll bring Him the leftovers. You see that in Malachi chapter 3 where God says, you know, you bring, you bring me the, the animals for sacrifice and you're bringing the sick ones, the lame ones, the ones that are half dead. You wouldn't even feed that to your governor and you're bringing it to me to sacrifice. You think I'm going to accept that? Forget it. I don't want your sacrifices. Because your heart's not there. Your heart's not there. It's like, it's like being in love with your wife and giving her a ring from a Cracker Jack box. What kind of love is that? Now, if you're three or four years old, maybe that's sort of cool but, and cute. But can you imagine some, some guy in a tux bending down, asking a woman to marry him, pull out a Cracker Jack ring and want to give that to her? We give God the second hands, the leftovers. And God says, no, I don't want the second hand stuff. I don't want the leftovers. Don't tell me he gave you a Cracker Jack box. <laughs> All right. But, <laughs> but the point is, both of them knew what God wanted. And Abel says, okay, I'm going to take God up on what he said. I'm going to bring him what he said he wanted. And that's why, if, for example, when you go to Hebrews chapter 11, what does it say about Abel? Abel offered a better sacrifice. Well, what sacrifice did Abel offer? The sacrifice that God told him to give. And by the way, what is faith? Faith is just believing what God said. God said he wanted an animal sacrifice. I'm going to bring that. That's faith. Cain said, I'll just bring God what he'll take. I don't want to go to the bother of tracking down a goat. I don't want to go running through the, you know, the, the, the woods trying to find a sheep. I'll just bring him uh, some corn or some barley or whatever it is that I have here. And that's good enough for him. And the Bible says, no, that's not good enough. Because you've got to bring the right offering. And there's a story in Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 7. Cain brought of the fruit of the ground. And it says, Cain here, he was very angry. And his countenance fell. Isn't that the way people are? You know, you bring something to God and God doesn't want it, we get mad at God. Wait a minute. What did God tell you? What did God tell you? He told you what he wanted. And, and we do that constantly. There are people that say, well, um, I know God said this, but I'm going to do that, and that's good enough for them. Yeah. And no, it's not. For some reason, and I have no idea why, as we've been talking about, you know, not giving God what he has told us, that we therefore know, but we try to do something else, running through my mind is uh, giving to people in need, such as our bringing our canned goods, for mm-hmm. instance, and such as taking things to the goodwill of the Salvation Army. And I'm thinking about how a lot of times we tend to give the stuff we don't want anymore that's kind of halfway useless. And I thought about the scripture, whatsoever you do unto the least of these, my little ones, you do it unto me. So it's kind of like that's another way in which you're mm-hmm. giving yeah, that's a whole other topic, but there's... Yeah. yeah. It's, it's definitely a peripheral thing mm-hmm. what we're talking about today. It's just, yeah. But the point with Cain and Abel is you bring God what God tells you to bring him. And you bring it the way he tells you to bring That's the Hophni and Phinehas problem, right? Remember them? Sons of Aaron? And on, um, on their ordination day, what did they do? They offered strange fire before the Lord. And what happened to them? Fire came out and burned them up. And not only did fire come out and burn them up, but God told Aaron, you're not allowed to mourn them. What's wrong with God? Pretty hard-hearted, isn't he? No. What's God trying to get across? Clearly. You approach me, but you approach me in the way that I tell you to approach me, or you don't come. 
And what we have is we have a lot of people today that come to God on their own terms. You don't come to God on your own terms. That's the Matthew 7 crown, Lord, Lord, did we not? I don't know who you guys are. You don't come to God on your terms. You come to God on His terms. And you bring a proper offering. And what offering did God require? An animal. He didn't require your good works. He didn't require your effort. He required a sacrifice. And that's how you approach God. And all Abel did was say, okay, I'll take God up on that. I'll do what God calls me to do and I'll bring a a blood sacrifice. And he did. What do you see in the New Testament? Well, Acts 4.12, there's salvation and no other name under heaven than who? He is the offering. What did Christ say? I am the door of the sheepfold. If any man come any other way, he is a thief and a robber. No man comes to the Father but by me. So why is it then that we have Christians today who want to say you can go to heaven and not know who Jesus is? What does the Bible say? You don't get there unless you go through the Father. And yet there are people today that want to make this inclusivistic religion. The basic says, look, if you're in bongo bongo and you're sincere, God will let you into heaven, whether you know of Jesus or not. That's not what the New Testament says. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, the life, as opposed to all other ways. There isn't, I'm not one of the paths back to God. I am the path back to God. And if you don't come through me, you don't come at all. You don't get there. You've got to go God's way. And God has ordained how we get to God, right? He has ordained how we have our relationship with Him restored. He's given us the answer to that. It's through the person and work of Christ. Therefore, if you deny the person and work of Christ, you are not a Christian regardless of what you do. Because you can't be. You don't come any other way. It's exclusive. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. By the washing, regeneration, renewing of the Holy Ghost. This is... God who, who gives us the way back through the person of Christ. He tells us what the sacrifice is. And the sacrifice was His own Son on the cross. And by coming the way of the cross, the bloody sacrifice, we have entrance back to God. If we don't come that way, we don't get in. Regardless of our good intentions. Cain, brought the, Cain did not bring the right offering. Also, Philippians 3, 4 through 9, I'm not going to read all of this, but what is Paul saying there? Paul's saying, you know, before I was a Christian, I had it made. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. What's that mean? Well, in the Pharisaical mindset, if you're a Hebrew, if you're a Jew, are you in or not? You're in. Not only was I a Hebrew of Hebrew, I was circumcised the eighth day. What was the second great moniker of Judaism? Circumcision, the eighth day. I was sacrificed on the right day. Not only that, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. What tribe was that? One of the most honored tribes. And not only that, I was a Pharisee. And I was zealous for the law. I knew that Paul could probably sit down here and start at Genesis 1-1 and end up at Malachi 3-6 and quote the entire Old Testament to you. Verbatim in Hebrew. That's how he knew this stuff. He knew this. He said... He said, you want to look at all of the things I had? I was a Hebrew. I was circumcised. I had the law. I was zealous for God. I thought I was great. And then what happened? I saw Christ. And all that I was banking on turned into scubalon. You don't want to know what scubalon is, do you? It's the stuff in the diapers. Scubalon. The ickiest stuff. That's what Paul's saying. It was filthy excrement. When I, when I looked at Christ and I looked at what I was bringing, all of a sudden I saw everything I was bringing as absolute filthy excrement. And I gave it all up for what? The excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but scubalon. Everything I was banking on, I had to pitch. I had to go with what God gave me. You don't come to God your own terms. You come to God on His terms or you don't come. And then we have the ark. This is a picture. What was Noah commanded to do? He's commanded to build an ark. Out in the middle of nowhere. 
It had never rained. And in fact, there were people that went to Noah that said, you know, I remember talking to Grandpa Adam, the first man, and he doesn't remember any rain. For 1,600 years, the, the flood came in year 1602 of human existence, if you count the years. No, 1652. And uh, for 1,652 years, it had never rained. They didn't know what rain was. And Noah was told it's going to rain. And not only that, he spent 120 years building the boat. How many of you would have spent 120 years building a boat? We're impatient, right? We want it done now. We want it right this minute. It doesn't work that way. It took him 120 years to do it. And what did Noah do? All Noah did was believe what God said, right? God said it's going to rain. Okay, it's going to rain. I want you to go and build a boat. Okay, I'll do that. That's what faith is, just believing what God said. And of course, we all know the, the story that um, he went into the ark with two of every kind of land animal and seven, of every, seven pairs of the clean ones. God shut the door and what happened? The rain. In fact, it was a global flood. You understand that, right? If you don't believe it's a global flood, lad, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to make Marshall come back and do ten weeks on the global flood. <laughs> It was a global deluge. Everything was covered. Everything was covered. And God wiped... In fact, what God said, I'm going to erase the earth. The word there, like erase... You know what you do with a paper? With, you erase it. He said, I'm going to erase the earth. Everything off the earth. To the point that we don't even know what the pre-flood civilization was. It was erased from the planet. Yeah. Yeah, that's the other part. Not doing anything about it. Well, that's that's really the message of Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 says, Abel believed God and he brought sacrifice. Noah believed God and he built a boat. Abraham believed God and he left. Moses believed God and he gave up his position. Um, faith is always evidenced by what you do. Right, and that's the James. You know, if you say you believe something and you're not doing anything about it, you don't believe it. People believe because they do it. And, and that's the, the action of faith. That's the evidence of faith. What's the New Testament reality? What is, well, the ark was covered with pitch. The word for pitch there is a very interesting word. It's the same word used for atonement. Kafar, to cover. What did he cover the external part of the ark with? With some kind of covering, a watertight covering to keep the water out. An atonement kafar, to cover. And that's the same word used when it's talking about the Day of Atonement, the Day of Kafar, where God covers us. And what did Christ do? Christ, in essence, covered us from the wrath of God. When God's wrath falls, we will be safe inside the ark and we will be covered by the protection of Christ who is our covering. He is the covering for our sin. Um, in fact, there's, and I, I wonder if I have it here, the Peter... Nope, I don't have it. In fact, there's a there's a reference in Second um, Peter chapter three that talks about Second Peter two, I think, that ca- talks about this. I don't know the verse off the top of my head, but the ark is seen as a covering. It was covered with pitch, and and since we are protected from the wrath of God, when God's wrath falls, we are covered by the blood of Christ. We will not experience God's wrath because who experienced it for us? Christ did. By the way, that that. That, if you don't get anything in all of our discussion on doctrine of salvation, get this. Christ took your place. I mean, that's really the bottom line. You were supposed to be nailed to that cross. And you were supposed to go to Christless eternity. And He took your place. He paid the penalty that you deserve to pay. And by the way, God did not go easy on Him. It's because He was His Son. You understand that? God did not go easy on Christ. God, Christ drank the full mixture of the wrath of God all the way down to the bottom. And it was not diluted down. He took it all in and paid the penalty. He is the substitute for us. Um, Abraham and Isaac, remember this story, right? Abraham finally has a son. The son's about 12 years old. And what does God tell Abraham to do? 
I want you to sacrifice your son on the altar for me. And I'll tell you where to sacrifice him. Now that's weird, isn't it? Here you've got this son. How long has Abraham been waiting for this son? Any ideas? Well, Isaac was born how many years after God first showed up to Abraham? Mm-hmm. When he first showed up to Abraham. Genesis 12, God shows up to Abraham. How, long, how old is Abraham when God first shows up? 75. All right. Then God shows up again, 90, around 90. And then God shows up again when he's 99, saying next time next year you'll have a son. So when was Isaac born? 25 years after God first showed up to Abraham. 25 years. Now, we get upset if God doesn't answer in 25 minutes. 25 years. And then, how many years after does Abraham get this message? Twelve. So 37 years after God first shows up to Abraham, promises a great nation, God says, I want you to take your son, your only son, I want you to sacrifice him for me. So what does Abraham do? He does it. He uh, wakes up Isaac, they take off, and they wind up, of course, at Mount Moriah, which is where the temple is in today, modern-day Israel. Wasn't anything there but a mountain. Builds an altar. And of course, Isaac says, Father, where's the sacrifice? And what does Abraham say? God will provide one. Now, what does Abraham know? Isaac is it. And what does Abraham do? Abraham binds his son, lays him on the altar, raises the knife to kill him. And God says, Stop. I always thought about this. You see, Abraham is 112 years old. How, how healthy are you at 112? They lived a longer time. I, I understand, but still, Abraham is not a spring chicken, right? Isaac is 12 years old. Now, I would have to admit that if I was 12 years old and my father was 112, I could probably outrun him. But he didn't, did he? See, we think Isaac, is, he didn't have any faith. Look, it took a lot of faith to crawl up on the altar and let your father raise a knife to kill you too. There's something with Isaac going on there that we read between the lines. Yeah. And the other thing that Abraham did, most likely, he recounted to Isaac the background of his birth, the miraculous nature of his birth, and that God had promised to make a great nation, and how God had done these things. And Abraham was so, this is the thing what it says in the New Testament, Abraham so believed the promise of God that he said, if God has to raise Isaac from the dead to fulfill his promise, he will. Because I believe that God is going to do it. That's faith. Now I'll tell you what, I'll be admit I'll admit it'd be tough for me to do that. It makes it tougher when it's not clarified here until you do day that it's a three day walk from yeah. where you had to leave to go to That's a whole lot of time to change your mind and turn around. Yep. And not only that, but he didn't have the end of the story, right? He didn't know how this was going to turn out. But that's what trusting God is. Yeah. I'm a single mom, I'm unemployed, it makes no sense. It's the greatest thing in the world, but I'm 
selling. I don't say that to expose, but just to testify that when you obey, God blesses it, and when you obey, it doesn't take away your struggles and your hardships because, I mean, everything in my life is falling down. My car is broken down. I've lost people in my life. I mean, you know, things have just happened bad over and over and over, but I continually put one foot in front of the other and say, okay, God, I have faith. I'm going to believe. It doesn't take away the hardships, but no. if I claim God, and if I'm going to testify, and, and, and if I'm going to keep it real with Him, then I'm going to obey. Right. And my faith is going to unravel and all of that. Yep. There can actually be blessings in, in pain. Yeah. yeah. And, and Abraham and Isaac discovered that that day on Moriah because just as the knife was to fall, what did God do? Stop. Mm-hmm. Because of the faith. And he looked over and saw a ram with his horns caught in a thicket. thicket. Now, why didn't he notice that before? Don't know. But what did God do? God provided a Sacrifice. substitute. And that's the thing here. The goat... Or the ram there was the substitute for Isaac. Who's our substitute? Christ. Christ. You understand that we all stand condemned before God. Absolutely. The executioner is ready to strike us dead. We have no defense. And just before the sword falls, Christ says, Stop. And he takes my place and says, continue. He took our place on the cross, didn't he? Well, absolutely. And that's the thing, folks, that, that, that's what makes me wake up at night and just awe and appreciation and worship and I don't know, yeah, you run out of words. I deserve... I deserve to die. And God says, no, I'm going to take your place. I'll die instead. And he didn't have to, did he? Nobody forced Christ to go to the cross. Christ could have called ten legions of, 12 legions of angels, been off of there in an instant. But no, he took our place. And when you really catch into that, you really start understanding, even in your own little pea-brained way, the, the infinite love that God has us. He took my place. He paid the penalty. And just as the ram became the substitute for Isaac, so Christ becomes our substitute here. We see this in Isaiah 53, the lamb who takes our place. Every Israelite knew what that was referencing to. It was referencing someone who took our place. 1 Peter 2.24, his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Christ took my place. He allowed himself to become the sacrifice that I could not be. He is the one who took my place. And why is it that Hebrews, the, the Jewish people who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but some of whom are verse in the Old Testament scriptures, including Paul. Why is it not obvious that it's Jesus? I don't know. But I think, I was talking to somebody the other day, and I said, I think part of our problem is this this is one of the reasons that we did that we, we have been doing the doctrines class at Open Door is that we are very good at creating a God that doesn't exist. A phantom God. We, we want Jesus to be the kind of Jesus we want Him to be. You see this. You see this. Yeah, you see this in, in you know, you look at the TV talk shows. Everybody likes Jesus. It's just, they don't, they don't like that Jesus. They like Jesus, but not the Jesus in the Bible. They like God, but not the God of Scripture. You know, they want to believe in God, but not that one. And so what we do is we create a God that we like. And that's what the Israelites did with the Messiah. They wanted the Messiah, but they didn't want that one. They didn't want the meek and mild Jesus. They didn't want this repentance junk. Give us the kingdom. Give us rule. Give us reign. Kick our enemies out of our country. Restore us to glory. But when Jesus came along and said, repent, 
They didn't want to have any part of that. And we do that today. We create a God and we create a Jesus that is not that Jesus. And that's why as believers, we need to constantly be going back to this book and figuring out, what Jesus do I believe in? Is it this one here? Or is it some Jesus that I've concocted in my own mind? And there are people that say, well, I don't like the idea of eternal punishment because my Jesus wouldn't do that. Well, maybe your Jesus wouldn't. But what would that Jesus, what is this Jesus going to do? Great white throne. He's going to cast them in the lake of fire. Well, what, that's, your, that's the Jesus of the Bible. Now, it may not be the Jesus that you've concocted in your mind, but that's what the Jesus of the Bible is going to do. We create the Jesus we want. We've got to take the Jesus that is. That, that's what we need to do. What's the bronze serpent? This is a, really a, a, a rich picture here. The bronze serpent. Remember what happened. Israel grumbled. That's nothing new, right? All they did was gripe. And God got fed up with them, so what did He do? He sent these serpents into the middle of the people that, in the midst of the camp and it bit them and whoever was bitten was, would die of these bites. And of course Israel cries out to God and so what does God do? God says, make a fiery serpent and set up on a pole. Make a bronze representation of that serpent and put it on a pole in the middle of the camp. And if anybody looks at that pole they'll be healed. Now, how big was the camp? Big. Really big. And in fact, it's possible if you were on the last row, you might not even be able to make out the bronze serpent very well. But if you looked, what happened? There's an old song, Look and Live. I love that old hymn. If they looked, they lived. And Christ picks up on this imagery in... John chapter 3 when he says as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so must the son of man be lifted up what's he talking about there crucifixion that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life the look of Jesus on the cross just like the bronze serpent would bring healing when we look at Christ on the cross in the right way and believe what do we have? Healing. Well, I well let's ask him when he went to heaven. <laughs> no, I don't know. I mean, it was it was that was what was it was there, and the serpent is a symbol of sin. Mm-hmm. You know, to be a symbol of sin, a symbol of that. But Christ is not saying, I'm sinful. Christ is using the example of being lifted up. And if you look at that, you can be saved. Christ says, if I'm lifted up and you look on me on the cross and believe... Yeah, and see, that's the thing. You can't get rid of the cross. See, that's what we want. We want Jesus, but we don't want the cross. We don't like the cross. Get rid of the cross. No, the cross is an essential component of our faith. It's a necessary component. Christ died on a cross, lifted up as our substitute. (coughs) Marshall, you're. And by the way, interesting, the bronze serpent actually became an idol. Did you know that? Later on in Israel, it was, part, it was called Nehushtan, the little bronze thing. And they worshipped it. And it says one of the kings, and I forget which king it was off the top of my head, said he broke into pieces the bronze serpent because Israel was worshipping the bronze serpent that was in the wilderness. Um, yeah. That's from Asclepius, the god of healing in Greek mythology. Right. Don't make images. He told them to make a bronze serpent, which was a symbol of their tormentor there, 
If you look on it, you'll live. Why did God do that? I don't know why God did that. God could have done any other number of things. But he said, let's do it this way. And that became a picture in the New Testament of Christ being lifted up and people who look upon him. And the idea of looking there is not, oh, there he is. No, the idea of looking is looking, gazing, thinking, believing on. That's the point. There's more than just a glance at it. They weren't worshipping an image. They were worshipping the God who told them to put the image up. But it became an image. It became an idol. Yeah, and, and with, you know, I, just, you know, that's why God never wanted anyone to build images. But it wasn't an image of God that he had them build. Any more than the ark was an image of God. Any more than the cherubim on top of the ark were images of God. All right. So it wasn't, it wasn't an idol, as you said. Yeah. And, and, and there's a... Right. And that's an interesting point that you bring out there because when Christ hung on the cross for the last three hours, what was He? He had taken upon Himself the sin of the world. So how did God the Father look at Him? He turned the lights out. He turned his back on his own son because he became sin. Now, understand what that means. In essence, Christ did not become sin. That's the word faith crowd that tells you that. In essence, he became sin. No, Christ did not in essence become sin any more than the goat that was sacrificed in essence became sin. That's not what the picture is. The picture is he took upon himself the sin of the world. He became the serpent in a sense by taking upon himself the sin of all of the humanity. Right. The idea of becoming sin is not becoming in sin essence, but taking upon oneself the imputed guilt of the world. The imputed sin. Because Christ is God. He cannot sin, right? He cannot in essence become sin, but he could take upon himself the sin. He could die in the place of us. Just like the goat. When the, when the priest laid his hands on the goat, we're not going to get to the Passover and the Day of Atonement. We'll do that next week. But when, you, when, you land, when he put his hands on the head of the goat, did that goat, in essence, become sin? No. But it, the sin of the people were imputed to the goat as though the goat had done that. And then when the goat was sacrificed, that sin was covered for a year. That's the imagery. All right. Well, we better stop there because we will not get through the Passover lamb or the... Day of Atonement, which are very vivid pictures. We'll do that next week. But um, hopefully this has been a little helpful to look at some of these pictures of salvation. Um, Let's close in prayer here. Father, thanks for this day that you've given to us. And thank you so much that you sent your Son to take our place on the cross. We could never pay the debt that we owe you, Father. Even an eternity in the lake of fire would not pay off one sin. But in your grace and your loving kindness and your compassion, you sent 
someone that could pay the debt. And by placing our faith and trust in Him, we can have eternal life and we can be with you someday redeemed. We thank you for that substitute and thank you for all your gracious and wondrous provision to us. In Christ's name, amen.